Today is Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. The Trump legal team has blasted the DOJ investigation, calling it unprecedented and misguided. We'll have the details on that and more on today's podcast, where we look to bring you the Christian perspective. You're not going to get that from secular news outlets. If you agree with that mission and want to see more of it, you can help. Subscribe to this podcast. Give us a rating. Share it with a friend. We'd love to have you with us as we go through the news of the cray. It is crazy out there. And you got to have some others who share your values to go through it with you. With me today, as always, Trey Gons Phillips, Billy Hallowell from CBN's Faith Wire. Guys, happy Tuesday. What's going on? Living the dream. See, we're the friends that you have that you don't, you don't ever see our faces, but you get to hear us. <laughs> and so if you don't have any like-minded friends, you can listen to us and we'll be your like-minded Look, it's friends. cathartic. It's cathartic to get through this. I mean, you read the news and every, I mean, I get this out. You guys must get the same question every time when you've talked to people, they find out what you do, you're in the news. That's the question I get every time. How do you do it? Oh yeah. Don't you get tired of it? Don't you get exhausted yes. from it? How do you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, or you get the, like when you tell them you're in news and it's just like, Oh, so how about the weather? Like, let's talk about something else. <laughs> right. They just, look, you got to be informed though. See, that's the thing. We've got to enter into this space. Don't do it alone. Don't go it alone. Not, not a wise move. So, all right. A couple stories coming up. A lot to get through on the podcast. How much are you supposed to tithe? Well, Barna asks some pastors around the country this very question. And on the main thing, the United Nations has moved to make abortion a human right. Let that oxymoron sink in a little bit. But we'll be discussing it a little bit on today's main thing. But first, the news in 90 seconds. Yesterday, former President Donald Trump's legal team said that the Justice Department is seeking to limit the scope of any review of its investigative conduct and presuppose the outcome, at least in regard to what it deems are, quote, classified records. The statement also said, in what at its core is a document storage dispute, that spiraled out of control. The government is wrongfully seeking to criminalize the possession by the 45th president of his own presidential and personal records. They added that the government should not be permitted to skip the process and proceed straight to a preordained conclusion. You can keep up with the latest on that over at CBNNews.com. Russia has retreated from swaths of the northeastern Kharkiv region in the face of a, a lightning Ukrainian military offensive. President Zelensky issued a stark warning to Moscow on Sunday, declaring that history will put everything in its place. And there are a lot of books coming out about former President Trump. The first from a family member comes from Jared Kushner. His new book, Breaking History, a White House memoir, gives a very different behind-the-scenes look. CBN's David Brody spoke with Jared about the book. You can check that interview out and more over at CBNNews.com. Well, Billy and Trey, uh, you see these books come out about Trump often, and it you can't help but feel like that this is people have an angle. They're trying to make a buck off of their time and either near the presidency or covering the presidency, or they have some sort of connection. But this is the first one that would be from sort of Trump's side of things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny to me that these books sell so well because yeah. you would think at this point, I mean, look, Trump lives rent-free in a lot of people's minds, but 
the reality is, even if you're a Trump fan, how many books are you going to read? And if you're a Trump detractor, how many books are you going to read before you're sort of tired reading about it? But yet they continue to sell well. I guess it speaks to his celebrity before being president as well. And I also think or I wonder about the how naive people are, because the reality is, is that at, at this point in a person's political life, like they're looking up for number one, right? Jared Kushner is writing a book for Jared Kushner. Uh, the same is true of like Kellyanne Conway and anybody else. So you have to remember, like, okay, there's a lot of this that may, you know, might not be that true. It might be quite an embellishment. There certainly is some truth to it, but I don't know. You have to read all these things with a grain of salt. So, but it certainly is fascinating to get against, to get an inside look. And I think one from Jared Kushner, like you said, is the first one kind of from the Trump camp side of things. Uh, Kellyanne Conway is also kind of from the Trump camp, uh, but it'll be interesting. Yeah. And I think one thing you have to remember when you're going through any of these books whether it's critical or whether it's in favor of a certain person, you got to consider the source's bias, the source's perspective, what they're looking at, what is their lens on this. Consider the source. We're a Christian outlet, so consider our perspective when you're seeing these news stories. We talk about it a lot on this podcast, but there is no neutral. You have a worldview. You have presuppositions that you make when you are evaluating the things that you're seeing around you and to pretend otherwise is a fool's errand. You just have to be aware of that when you're reading and consuming stuff. Okay, where is this person coming from? And then it makes it a lot easier to di digest and understand what exactly might be happening or not happening in a given book. So but you can check out David Brody's interview with Jared Kushner over at CBNnews.com. All right, there is a new Barna survey about Americans and pastors' view of tithing. Trey, hit us with it. What does it show? <laughs> okay, so Barna commissioned a survey in November of last year, and they just published the results this week. Uh, they surveyed 2,016 people uh, and found that most pastors don't define giving outside the church as a form of tithing, but a clear majority, 70%, uh, said that such giving doesn't need to actually be solely financial, which is an interesting finding. And when it comes to monetary giving, only 33% that the, uh, believe that the traditionally accepted you know, 10% uh, tithe uh, is proper. Others believe it's up for interpretation. There are several different options there. So the findings, though, by Barna were part of a larger study uh, commissioned by the organization entitled The State of Generosity, which looks at giving financially, giving, you know, talent-wise, all of that, looks at a whole host of different issues across church culture in America. So, I mean, I think Christians have been operating under the assumption for a long time now that 10% is sort of right. the number that you try to aim for. If that's not the consensus, what, what are some of the other sort of perspectives coming into play here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think for a lot of evangelical Christians, a lot of Protestant believers, the 10% is kind of what we have in our head. It's what I have in my head whenever I think about church and giving and tithing and all of that. Uh, but one in five pastors, 21%, I believe that the measurement of a proper offering or tithe is simply whether it's sacrificial. Uh, while 20% uh, said that Christians should just give as much as they're willing to offer. Uh, so a lot of pastors and a lot of ministry leaders just think it's up to interpretation, your personal socioeconomic status, your personal life situation. Uh, interestingly, and maybe kind of unfortunately, though, most American Christians, according to this survey, don't really even have an understanding of what the word tithe means, which is literally a tenth of your income. 
uh, only 43% of self-described Christians and just 44% of church givers could, quote, decisively define what tithing meant. Uh, practicing Christians had a much better grasp of the term. Uh, 59% of them said that they knew what the term meant. And of course, uh, this is good news. 99% of pastors uh, knew what the the word meant. So at least we're good in that case. Yeah. I wonder what, who the 1% is though. Yeah. I have some, I have some theories on it. I've got some guesses, but I'm not going to, not going to level them here. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because when you see a lot of the surveys out here, Trey, about who gives more to charities and et cetera, and usually liberals and the more democratic side don't give as much to charity. And I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that, you know, I know I don't view when the government taxes me, I don't view that as me being charitable. I just view that money as sacrificial giving. No, it's not sacrificial giving at all. It was taken at gunpoint, but also I don't view it as the best use of my money. Like, I just don't think it's, it's going to be squandered. You know, they're going to pay for studies on turtles crossing the road and all that stuff. That's what I imagine in my head. But I think a lot of people on the left side of the aisle would say the opposite. They would say, well, I don't have to give because look at, they're taking all this money and they're putting it to great use. That's just a theory of mine on the, on the giving levels. Do you think that plays at all into what we're seeing here with the tithing? Yeah, no, I think that certainly is something to consider. I think people's understanding of scripture also plays plays yeah. a huge role. If you value giving as an act of worship, for example, uh, then I think that you're you're going to be more apt to give to your church, but you can't apply that same motivation to your taxation uh, and, and, and that kind of stuff, because those are obviously, like you said, compelled. Um, so I, I certainly think that, that faith plays a huge role in how you view you're giving. Are you just giving because it's your duty and you've, you know, I got to do this, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Uh, but that's why we see a whole lot of studies over the, over the years where Christians end up being one of the most charitable groups in the country, right? Because they, they give not just to their church, they give right. to a ton of different charities. And I think a lot of it is because of, of what's been ingrained in us uh, as, as a desire to give back what was not ours to begin with, right? It was the Lord's. Everything that we earn is the Lord's and we're just giving it back to him. You see in Mark 12, right, where you have the poor woman who puts in the two coins and you've got all the rich people throwing all their money in. And, you know, Jesus said she gave out of her poverty. She gave right. everything, right? That that story always sticks with me because she willingly gave, and it's not to say give everything you have away, but in her circumstance, it was a sacrifice. She did yeah. that. Right. It was exactly. Sac- exactly what Trey was saying. It is, it is a sacrifice. Well, and I also think, you know, what your money is going to is key. And like you mentioned, Dan, who your money is going to, because either the reality is like in Lynchburg, where I live, we have uh, soup kitchens and obviously food banks, like every other city across the country. Uh, I think it's important for us as believers to give our money into those church ministries, because it shouldn't be the city that's taking care of these needs, right? It's the church's, the Christian community's responsibility to take care of one another. That's what God created this body of believers for us, to take care of one another and to evangelize by meeting people's needs. Uh, so our money is better spent there or should be better spent there than to say, well, I give my money to, I, you know, I pay my city taxes, I pay my state and federal taxes. They'll take care of everything. No, that's not the mindset that we ought to have as believers. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree there. And um, well, that leads us into our main thing for today. And you know, the question that the UN is asking, should abortion be a human right? They, they think the answer to that is yes. And a lot of others think that's quite an oxymoron. Well, CBN's Madison Seals takes a look at what the UN is trying to do and how Christians are responding. That's on today's main thing. 
Welcome back into The Main Thing, where today we're discussing a resolution just passed by the United Nations acknowledging access to abortion as a human right. On September 2nd, the UN General Assembly approved the International Cooperation on Access to Justice, Remedies, and Assistance for Survivors of Sexual Violence, which essentially promotes abortion and gender-based language. Since 1994, the General Assembly has held that abortion is an issue that should be decided at the national level without external interference from the United Nations. But much like what we're seeing happen in the U.S., the European Union and the U.S. government are trying to undermine the longstanding consensus by pushing radical ideologies through. Here to discuss with me is Austin Roos, president of the Center for Family and Human Rights. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you mentioned that this is the first time a resolution of this nature has passed in the United Nations. What is the significance of this resolution? Well, it should be understood that this is a non-binding resolution. So in theory, it shouldn't really affect anything except the UN system itself. But what we know is that even non-binding resolutions are used in, in federal courts around the world. They're, they're used by parliamentarians around the world. So what, what will happen is that this non-binding resolution will be cited as an authoritative source for establishing customary international law, which as, is as binding as treaty law, but just in a different way. So though it's non-binding, it can and will have an effect around the world. And I know that's probably what many listeners are eager to know, is how or will this affect the current post-row status of abortion in the United States? These kind of documents are cited by state legislatures. For instance, uh, there's there's a, a treaty called the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which the United States has never ratified, but a couple hundred cities have ratified it and have committed to implementing the terms of that treaty. Um, when the Supreme Court overturned the juvenile death penalty now many years ago, the Supreme Court cited the Convention on the Rights of the Child which is a treaty that we've never ratified. So these these types of things affect Americans in ways that we don't, where where most Americans have no idea. So that's the importance for us as Americans. Now you multiply that tenfold overseas where there's not such a robust conservative movement, for instance. I mean, none of these treaties have been ratified by the U.S. Senate because they've never been able to get 60 votes but this is not the case around the world. So they do affect us here, but more it, they, they more affect people around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting because so many here probably didn't even know this resolution was being considered. I know I didn't until I saw, I think it was um, information from you regarding this recently. Well, you know, we, um, we set up shop at the United Nations after the Cairo conference in 1995. We opened our doors in the summer of 97 precisely to be a watchdog on a debate that most people don't even know is going on. I mean, this, these kinds of negotiations go on every day of the, every working day of the year. And so we've participated in, in hundreds and thousands of negotiations for non-binding as well as binding treaties. So yeah, we're kind of like the watchman on the wall when it comes to life and family issues at the United Nations. That's great. It's so important. And the EU and United States have pushed for this intermittently for over 30 years, and 15 countries tried to block this resolution in particular. So was the pro-life opposition just not enough, or how did this resolution finally get pushed through? 
Well, I got pushed through because of the dishonesty of the people running the debate, which was J uh, Japan and Sierra Leone acting on behalf of the European Union and the United States. The UN works by quote-unquote consensus, and that, that means that basically everybody has to agree before something moves forward. And so we've always been able to cobble together enough opposition to block most of this stuff. I mean, there's no international right to abortion because we've stopped them. There's the, the, the family has never been redefined because we've been able to cobble together, you know, 15, 20, 50 states to stop it. In this particular case, the negotiations were profoundly dishonest. And Japan, that ran, ran the negotiations, simply would not allow amendments or votes or anything like that to challenge the abortion language in, in the document. I mean, the document is on sexual violence. It didn't have to include gender language. It didn't have to include abortion language. But this is what the powers that be, the United States, the European Union, the UN agencies wanted. And so that's what Japan and Sierra Leone gave them. But, you know, hats off to the brave Africans who stood up on that final day and tried to stop it. It was really dramatic. And then Friday afternoon and then just uh, yesterday, there were speeches in the General Assembly condemning uh, the abortion language in this so all told, it was a loss, but, you know, our guys really hung in there. It was really a sight to behold. And I do want to get into the language of the resolution a bit because that's where much of the disagreement lies. The language about safe abortions and the resolution, quote unquote, safe abortions, has been rejected in negotiations of other resolutions in the past. But Western countries, including the EU and the Biden administration, basically shut down negotiations this summer, as you mentioned. So a lot of these claims made, like protecting access to, quote unquote, safe abortions, have been disproven with what we know from technological development. What are some of these other main points of disagreement? The gender language is, is highly controversial at the United Nations. Um, sexual orientation and gender identity has never gotten any traction in the UN General Assembly documents. So they try to sneak it in by using gender language. So those two issues are probably the most controversial at the United Nations. You know, it, it's like take the issue of abortion. They always, they generally use the language of reproductive health, reproductive rights. Here they use the euphemism of quote unquote safe abortion. And then it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity. It's, it's never been accepted by the UN General Assembly. So they have to use gender language. So, you know, and it's like you, you feel sorry for a lot of these delegations who have very small numbers um, and, and are not familiar with all the tricks of language that generally, the, you know, the powerful Western nations use to impose the sexual revolution on the world. And so a lot of these smaller delegations are caught completely off guard. But some of them were really quite ferocious this last week, led primarily by Nigeria. There's just so much irony about policies promoting homosexuality and transgenderism because they're used under the pretense of addressing sexual violence. And these policies, they've proven to do the opposite of protecting women. When we take away women's rights to privacy in restrooms, abuse shelters, and so many other places, there's just a lot of contradictions in the text, like including how access to safe abortions is guaranteed as a way to ensure protection of human rights. Those two goals just so clearly contradict each other. Human rights are about preserving life, not protecting the right to take it away. You know, they're so sneaky. One of the things that we reported yesterday was that the U.S. representative, Ambassador De Laurentiis, who used to be the U.S. The US representative to Cuba, 
um, he was in the balcony of the UN negotiations. One of my guys was sitting right there. He came up to a group of left-wing lobbyists and assured them that this non-binding resolution would have a profound effect on customary international law. Minutes later, he took, the, he took to the podium uh, to talk to the UN member states, and he assured them that it would have no effect on international law. <laughs> they are so two-faced, and, and and we were there, and we saw. I mean, we see it all the time. But you know, this is how they sneak things through. They will lie to their fellow member states of the United Nations, and then they'll tell their friends the truth. So th this is kind of the way that they get that they try to get things done at the United Nations. It's it's a profoundly dishonest way to do business. What are some of the potential dangers now that the UN has? so openly expose such an extreme radical view? Well, I mean, the danger is that this language will be used to push abortion on, on countries around the world. I mean, they're going to say that the General Assembly has determined that safe abortion is an aspect of human rights, and therefore, you have to strike down all of your restrictions on abortion. If you strike down all of your restrictions on abortion, you have to move into paying for abortions. I mean, it's quite remarkable. You know, and what we hear time and again from our friends in Africa is that what they need is clean water, safe sanitation, basic medical care. They need better roads. And what we give them is UN-style family planning and abortion, comprehensive sexuality education, the whole panoply of issues of the sexual revolution that has caused so much damage in, in our own country, and we're just trying to ex export it around the world. So this resolution will be used against the poorer countries in Africa and Latin America. And, you know, I guarantee you that there will be cities and counties and states in the United States that will cite this document as a reason that we, you know, that there has to be a right to abortion in this country, because golly, the UN has told us so. We have to remember here in the U.S. that life is the first fundamental human right, and without it, other rights don't even matter. Well, that's even cited in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, everyone has the right to life. It says that. All human beings have the right to life. What I call the sexual left, the, the sexual colonialists, conveniently ignore that. You know, one of the debates about in this whole thing was, was, was the question of, quote, agreed upon language. And so the, the, the left in this, in this negotiation were saying, oh, all of this is agreed upon language. It's been used before. But none of it has been agreed to before without objection. You know, for instance, there is a, a really good definition of gender in international law. We had a hand in negotiating it, the, these, the Rome statutes of the International Criminal Court. And the definition of gender in international law is men and women in the context of society. But the UN bureaucracy goes around saying, oh no, gender is a social construct and there are 58 genders. So they don't even be believe in agreed upon language. Well, Austin, I think that's all we have time for today. But thank you for your time and insight on the podcast today and for all you do in exposing the dangers to the family and women and children and also fighting to protect them. Delighted to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, Madison, thank you so much for that conversation. And that leaves us with time for one last thing today, guys. And I want to head on over to Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And I, I just think that's a great reminder. I was reading this the other day and... You know, no matter where you're at in life, no matter what job you have or what you're doing, 
it's just a great reminder to focus that on doing it for Christ, not doing it for your boss, not doing it for, you know, to make your family better off or whatever the case may be. Those are some side things that can come along with it. But I think if we're doing something, let's do it all in for God. And not getting obsessed with doing things for ourselves too, right? Like looking for the next best job. Oh, if I just get over here, then God could use me. If I just go over there, I'll finally be, you know, worthwhile or useful. Remembering that like God has you where you are, wherever you are right now, you can make a difference and you need to be working for him. So I think in my own life, I've, I had struggled with that in the past. And I think coming to peace with that and recognizing that actually helps us live a stronger Christian walk. I think it's similar to the the discussion we were having about the tithe and offering uh, story, yeah. right? It's what's, what's my heart motivation behind my giving and say, what's my heart motivation behind this work that I'm doing? Even if, like you said, I'm between jobs, so I don't have my, I'm not earning my salary. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing other work or, you know, even if you are earning your salary or you're a cashier somewhere, you know, whatever it is, uh, am I doing this so I can get the praise of other people? Uh, or am I doing it uh, for the Lord? I think another way that we often get tripped up to uh, is in serving within the church. I know it's something that has been an issue for me before is when I go into serve in church, am I doing it because I'm going to get accolades? Am I doing it because it's going to make me feel good because I'm being a quote unquote good Christian? Or am I doing it as an uh, an honest and humble act of worship to the Lord? I think that's something we have to all pray and, and earnestly seek out wisdom about. Yeah. Amen. Well said. A lot to think about for everybody today. And uh, as always, head on over to CBNnews.com, faithwire.com for more news from a Christian perspective. And Lord willing, in that creek don't rise on us, we will be back here tomorrow with more. Hope you have a fantastic rest of your mini Monday. And we'll see you back here on hump day. God bless.